0: Well, good morning again. I'm excited to start a new series with you going through the first epistle of John. What a change this will be from Daniel, by the way. Uh, for some of you, you're like, thank you. Uh, other people, uh, but in all seriousness, I hope that regardless of, kind of what you thought about them, the the sermon series on Daniel, that there was hope and encouragement in it for you, even though it's certainly a challenging book. First John will present its own challenges, obviously, but they will be very different than the kinds of challenges that we faced in the book of Daniel. This letter is so, so rich. And I'm telling you right now that this letter rewards, very much rewards, careful study. And so as is my practice and what I understand to be a foundational sermon for the whole series, I want to provide an introduction to the whole book today, uh, both concerning the writing and some of the background information. Then I want to talk about some of the key themes to look out for ahead of looking at the first four verses and drawing some application. So that's kind of the game plan for this morning as we lay the foundation to move forward through John's first letter. Okay? Does it sound good? Awesome. Sounds good. Okay. The first thing we need to discuss is the author of 1 John. There are very good reasons, both internally and externally, to believe that John, that is to say the Apostle John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, wrote this letter. Nothing about the inspiration or inerrancy of the Bible hinges, by the way, on who wrote 1 John. No one even knows the author of the book of Hebrews, for example, and so that's not, it's not a matter of it has to be John to have a, some kind of authority. That's not the case. Uh, but there are very good reasons to think it is, in fact, John, the author of the Gospel of John. Even in the first four v- verses, we're going to get someone who reports as an eyewitness. Many of the themes and phrases in 1 John you are going to notice res- strongly resemble the Gospel of of John, So certainly the internal evidence for 1 John being authored by John assumes the gospel of John was also authored by John. I don't have time to defend that. But if you have good reason to think that John's gospel was written by the apostle John, which I think we do, I think we have very good reason to believe that 1 John was also written by the same apostle there. The external evidence is very clear. The near universal testimony of the early church was that the Apostle John wrote 1 John? The earliest witnesses uh, are, to this are Polycarp, who himself was a disciple of John, and Papias, and we read about both of them through the works of Irenaeus and Eusebius. I think for our purposes, between the internal factors and the external factors, is sufficient to give us enough confidence that the Apostle John uh, is the author of 1 John. Okay, had a seminary professor tell me, do not bring your seminary issues into the pulpit it says 1 john everyone already thinks john wrote it so don't spend time you know trying to construct reasons for what people already believe so i'm going to try to that was my whole that's it i'm moving on now try to give you a little bit there those are the reasons people think first john was written by the apostle john but now it just says john we're moving forward with that what about when john wrote when did john write this precision is going to escape us here but it appears that first John and second and third John, by the way, there's no necessary indication that second and third John were written after first John just because they appear that way. It might have been that uh, some, some people think that Second John was a cover letter written to the elder. And then you had first John it was a circular letter, and then third John was to a particular individual in the church and they all circulated together, which is why First John is what appears in the early canon lists. It's speculation, but I say that to say we don't know that 2nd and 3rd John were necessarily written before or after. Nevertheless, we have good reason to believe that John's letters and his gospel were penned in the last decade of the first century. So we're talking about the 90s here. These are the latest works in the New Testament. These are the John's writings, by and large, are the latest, some of the latest works in the New Testament. One suggestion, uh, well, I said that it, it's not clear whether Second and Third John are written after First John. I think it's much, I think it's more persuasive to think that First John was written after the Gospel of John. A couple of reasons for that, um, but one is uh, it, it certainly makes a lot of sense that First John was written as a correction to potential misunderstandings of the Gospel of John. For example, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world. Well guess what? We should love the world too, and we should go and love the and then in first John we're gonna hear, Do not love the world. Do not love the world. Okay, there are some really good cases made that first John comes after the Gospel of John in order to be a corrective commentary on that gospel. Minority position it's the other way around. First John was written and then a gospel was written to show what that what First John's teaching looked like in real life of Jesus. Okay? I hold to probably the first view. In either case, First John and really all the writings are late. They are very late in the nineties, the last decade of the first century. What are the provenance of First John? The provenance of First John. Church history is quite unified again as in, in saying that some point after Christ's ascension, that John, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, with whom Jesus entrusted, you know, Jesus entrusted her to John there at the cross, he moved to Ephesus, where he was a leader, and I would suggest an elder, and unsurprisingly exercised an incredible amount of influence in that community around Ephesus while he wrote the gospel and letters. Irenaeus says John, the disciple of the Lord, who leaned back on his breast, published the gospel while he was resident in Ephesus in Asia. The church was founded by Paul, Eusebius reports, Irenaeus saying, but John stayed there until the time of Trajan. Eusebius, citing Eusebius, a church historian, wrote Ecclesiastical History, one of the most well-known early church histories, John, he's an ancient author, by the way, Eusebius, John used to go from Ephesus to neighboring districts in some places to appoint bishops and other to reconcile whole churches and in in other to ordain some of those pointed out by the Holy Spirit. And then finally, you have him citing Polycrates, John, who leaned on the Lord's breast, who was a priest wearing the mitre and martyr and a teacher, sleeps at Ephesus. Very good reason to believe that John wrote from Ephesus. Remember, uh, uh, actually don't remember, strong reason to believe the gospel and the letters came out of Ephesus in Asia Minor after John moved there, which itself was after the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's kind of the that's the lay of the land in terms of where John was writing from. What was the occasion of first John? Now, occasion is different than purpose. Occasion is different than purpose. It causes us to ask, what precipitated this letter? What caused a need for this letter to be written? And what we will click, quickly see as we work our way through the letter is that John seems compelled to write on account of a group of folks that in the literature called the secessionists, not the cessationists, to be very clear. Nothing to do with spiritual gifts. These secessionists, think more like Civil War uh, secessionists, to move out of, to withdraw from. They went out from us, 1 John 2.19. Um, when we respond, engage in this kind of responsible mirror reading of the text where we piece together context based off what the author is speaking into and kind of, kind of see the, try to see the other side of it, reconstruct the scenario, it becomes clear that there was a group of folks who had departed orthodoxy, and they were teaching false doctrine, causing some people to rethink what they had heard from the beginning. And you are going to hear this phrase, from the beginning, multiple times throughout 1 John. These false teachers have a heterodox or perhaps heretical understanding of Christ, um, they have a, a, a heterodox understanding of the Holy Spirit and the need for a second anointing uh, and for in order to have a certain kind of knowledge, it seems. They're claiming to be without sin. Uh, th- there's, there's problems here, and, and they're causing problems in the church. And so John, being an apostle, being at Ephesus, intimately aware of this, decides to write this first letter, which causes us to ask then, to whom was he writing? And that's the question of audience. Unlike Thessalonians, the Thessalonian letters, unlike the Corinthian letters, First John, if you'll notice there, and we're gonna—I promise—we're gonna actually read the text when we get to the text. Uh, we're not there yet. Uh, it is not addressed to anybody. It's not addressed to anybody, and that, in conjunction with the context I just mentioned, strongly suggests that. 1 John was written as a circular letter for the churches there in Asia Minor very similar to how the revela- how Revelation was also written as a circular letter. You see the first part of Revelation the letters to the churches, It's a little bit of a misunderstanding. Revelation is one letter that was circulated to the churches and they each had an address in there, but it was one letter. It wasn't just one church that was being affected by these folks, in other words. It wasn't just one church. It seemed to be uh, uh, certainly it, it seemed to be a group of churches. It seems to be a wider audience. And it seems that the letter was designed kind of for the mail route there in Asia Minor as opposed to a particular church. Obviously, John being an apostle, being uh, in, influential, and being even in an influential city like Ephesus was the perfect candidate to address such a letter and address the, uh, uh, the secessionists. That's the occasion in the audience. Then finally, what is the purpose? What is the purpose? As it turns out, we're going to get multiple instances of John saying why he is writing this. Multiple instances. I am writing to you, and then we're going to get a handful of answers. Uh, Many different explanations, but I would say none are as encompassing and as decisive as the purpose statement in 1 John 5.13 where he writes this. I write these things to you who, bene- who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. A few things to clarify. Okay? First, he is writing to those who already believe in the name of the Son of God as John understands him. Okay? So the work is occasioned by these secessionists, oppositions, but it's not a polemical work. In other words, it's not a work that is attacking something else in and of itself. It is a work, uh, it's not directed towards the secessionists. It's directed towards these churches who are experiencing some of this heterodox teaching. Um, because of that, 1 John is written in the style, this is a you know, million dollar literary word here, uh, epideictic rhetoric. Epideictic rhetoric. What is epideictic rhetoric? I think this is really important for understanding some of what we can expect out of John here. Epidictic rhetoric is a style of writing and exhortation that is aimed to increase an audience's conviction and assurance about things they already believe. Or that they already hold to. This is why John keeps using the phrase, from the beginning. From the beginning. Okay? He's, calling it back to, he's calling them back to a foundation that's already been laid. He's not laying out new, nuanced arguments in most cases for things. The foundation's already been laid. That which you've heard from the beginning, that's what you've heard from the beginning, that which you've heard from the beginning, he assumes that they've heard these things from the beginning. That affects how you do theology out of John's letter. That affects. Listen to Ben Witherington. He says, Since this is epidoctic rhetoric, we should not expect formal arguments carefully laid out. The author is not attempting to persuade the audience about that, about something that they do not already affirm or believe. Nor is he seeking to alter their behavior in the near future. Nor is he attacking or defending actions taken in the past. This homily is all about praise and blame in the present for things already believed and already done. Okay, So I think that's critical for what we're expecting out of 1 John. If you have the wrong expectations for a piece of literature, what it's supposed to be giving you, and the manner in which it's supposed to be giving it to you, you will very quickly either be very frustrated or find wrong things there in the text. So remember, John is writing, assuming a foundation that was from the beginning. He's writing to people who already believe this, He's writing to people who are troubled by these secessionists, and he is calling them simply to be faithful to a foundation that's already been laid, and I'm suggesting that's critical for how you do theology out of 1 John in a way that is very different than you might do, very different, meaningfully different than how you might do theology out of the book of Romans, for example. Finally, the 5.13, that you may know. The idea of knowing, and to, to know, knowing in general that we may know, it's all over, First John. I have every instance of "no" circled in my copy of Scripture, and if you're someone who's OK with writing in your Bible, if you circle every time you see "no, knowing, known, that we may know, I mean, you're going to have circles just everywhere as we go through First John. First John is an incredible level, uh, excuse me, an, inque- an, in- an incredible letter of assurance. John is going to give us this litany of reasons to believe we are in the faith. This is how we know who are the true disciples. This is how we know. This is how we know. This is how we know. Over and over, we have known this. So over and over and over, we're going to get how we know. So if you're a self-condemner or a doubter, 1 John, I, want, I hope that this washes over you. I hope that I can bring this food out hot to you and let it just warm your soul. This is how you can know you are walking in the truth. And so I think these things are very, very helpful before even stepping into the text of 1 John. Now, before we turn to the prologue, I want to do one more thing. Have you ever watched a movie and uh, you watch it the first time through, but then you talk with someone and they say, hey, did you notice this, this, this like theme that keeps popping up? And you're like, no, I didn't notice that. But when you walk, watch it the second time through, then you, can, you, you see that. Or maybe you, it's your first time through, but all, someone has said, hey, be on the lookout for this. Um, or or we were, when we were looking for houses, I don't know how many we walked through. And then, you know, you might get to say, hey, when you walk through this house, make sure to check on these things. Notice these things. Like, oh, I wouldn't have noticed that otherwise. What I'm about to do is I'm about to give you a framework for the tour. Framework for the first John movie. I'm going to tell you some things to watch out for. And my goal in doing it isn't to kind of isn't kind of spoil something, uh, spoil a surprise. It's that I want it. I hope that it helps the letter come alive to you more as we walk through it. Just like when you're looking for certain things in the movie, you're like, oh, I see it, I see it, I see it. Otherwise, when you just kind of walk through it without being told about these things uh, to begin with, you don't see it as clearly. And so what I'm going to do is just tell you a couple things to look out for, some key themes as we go for the letter. The first is truth. Watch out for John's aletheology. The Eletheology, the study of truth. John, in John, truth does not merely mean the opposite of falsehood or something like you know, that which describes reality. In, true, in John, truth has what I'm going to call a thick meaning. It's got a thick meaning. For him, Christ is the truth, for example. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith, is the truth. And and flowing out of those things, the way we are to live before God Himself, the moral standards are the truth. So in verse 6 of chapter 1, we're going to read that if we walk in darkness, we do not do, literally in the Greek, do the truth. ESV, practice the truth. There's a practicing element to it as well. So watch out as we go through John, what I'm calling a thick understanding of the truth. And you might remember, by the way, just to kind of point back to my argument that I said I had moved on from, you might remember in John 18, Jesus says, I've come to bear witness about the truth. And you have Pilate ask, what? What is truth? The same theme from the gospel is going to come again in the letter. Okay, So watch out as we move forward. For John's uh, theology, The second is John's conceptual dualism. So already put your antenna up for the conceptual dualism. We're going to see these sets of antonyms and this polarity that are designed to kind of categorically and ethically set apart God's people from everyone else. It is very much an us and a them. Not in terms of how you're supposed to engage people or be ugly, but categorically there are God's people and then there's everyone else. And we're going to see, it, and we're going to see the, uh, this through contrast. We're going to see contrasts of light and darkness, God and the world, children of God, children of the devil, eternal life, death, Christ, antichrist, righteousness, sin, truth, lies, love, hating your brother. You see that. You're going to say, and and the people who are in this category belong to Jesus. One set of descriptions is going to apply. And everyone else to this, there is no middle lane. There's no middle lane for John. Okay? He is giving these exhaustive and exclusive features. Meaning, everyone who's in Christ has these features. And only those in Christ uh, have these features. All and only. Exhaustive and exclusive. Distinct is for... God's people keep an eye on the antonyms and the dualism as we go through the letter the third is the person and work of Christ particularly his divinity and atonement but the eternality of God the son the divinity of Christ the humanity of Christ are going to show up as major repetitive themes in the book and frankly you won't be able to miss this one but I want to call your attention to it because it's prominent also The atonement atonement itself is mentioned. It's mentioned in different ways. Mentioned, alluded to at least four times. So be watching for that as we go through as well. Finally, true love in light of Christ. 1 John has a great deal to say about love. And a great deal to say about sin. These two themes were as easily... Twisted then, as they are now. What counts as true love? Past trying your best. Being nice. Serving people as they indicate they would like to be served. What is the Christian's relationship to sin? And what should that relationship be? What are we to make of passages like 1 John 3.6 that says no one who abides in Christ keeps on sinning. Do you keep on sinning? I do. Whoops. What what are we to make of this? Throughout, watch for John's homartiology, the theology of sin. His doctrine of sin and how it contrasts with the true love that is found in light of Christ. Okay? So, between the background to the writing and the key themes... I think the stage is set well for us to begin the journey into the text of 1 John. So open your copy of the scripture with me, if you have not done so, so already, to First John. And we read this. That which, we have, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. and indeed, our fellowship was with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. In John's Gospel, in the beginning was the Word refers to something like time immemorial. But here in John's prologue, in a manner consistent with the in the beginning throughout the rest of the letter, John is calling us back to the beginning of God the Son made flesh, or in other words, the Incarnation. He's going to keep calling us back to the Incarnation, to Christ, the truth for John. He says, he really goes over the top, honestly, to clarify the the corporeality, the, the, the physical nature of Jesus, the earthiness, the humanity of the word of life here. He is life, and therefore he is the one who is able to give life. He is life, and so he's the one who is able to give life. It's another theme that comes up in John, the idea of true life. He says, We heard. This life. We've seen this life. So he's writing, obviously, again, as an eyewitness. He's saying he's not the only one. There's a we there. It's a plural. He's the one doing the writing, but he's not alone. We heard him. We've seen him. We've looked upon him. It's a different Greek word. It likely means something like I've seen what kind of person this is, as opposed to just seeing them with my eye. Like, you know, I see them as a flesh and blood human being instead of a ghost or an apparition. Like I've seen them. This is, I've seen what kind of person they are. Something like that is likely what's going on here. I've touched, I've touched the word of life made flesh. We have touched the word of life made flesh. And then in verse 2, he interrupts himself. That's why you have hyphens in your copy of the scripture, probably. He interrupts himself. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which is with the Father and was made manifest to us. And then he's going to continue on from verse 1. It's kind of confusing how he does it, but let's just, let's just break it down here. First, he gives the Son, and he gives this word of life the eternal element. This is the word which was before all time. This was the Word who was with the Father. And it is now God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, who has been made manifested, who's been revealed among us. And of course course He would have to be revealed in order to see with our eyes, because otherwise you couldn't see, because God is Spirit. That's the whole scandal of the Incarnation, is that it's a living violation, in quotes, of, uh, of uh, of the uh, prohibition against graven images, do not create an image. And Jesus comes as the image of God. It's a it's a it's of course it's not uh, actually a violation of the commandment, but it, that's the whole scandal of it. Is God, who is spirit, who is invisible, immortal, takes the form of a man? He is the image of the invisible God revealed, God in the flesh. And in clarifying that this life was kind of revealed, manifested in the flesh, that He was formerly with the Father, it puts to bed any speculation that Christ was a regular man who was kind of adopted by God through the Holy Spirit at His baptism, for example, a heresy called adoptionism in the early church. It puts to rest the idea that He had a phantom body or kind of an apparent body, but not a real one. Docetism. Or that he was just the father, uh, that God exists in different forms or modes, and he was just kind of the father presenting himself as the son. Modalism, that's not it. It says he was with the father, distinguishing two particular people. Or that he wasn't eternal or truly divine. Arianism. That's a loaded way. When I interrupt myself, I usually have to ask the people I'm talking to what I was talking about. Okay, This is... Uh, this is a very, very loaded interruption of what he says coming out of verse verse one theologically loaded that 's a parenthesis in a sense, and he continues on with that so you kind of you know if you kind of block out verse two there, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, verse three. That which we have seen and heard, he continues on, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the father and his son, Jesus Christ. He says we are proclaiming as reliable eyewitnesses, a reliable eyewitness is very key in this kind of a letter in the first century, having to being a credible eyewitness. And we're proclaiming this so that you can experience fellowship with us. Again, this might look like it's establishing fellowship, but it's not. It's continuing on in fellowship that John already assumes his audience has with him. The word fellowship is koinonia. It's a good word to know. Let me ask, if you were to define fellowship, what is fellowship? What would you say? How would you understand fellowship? And John's understanding, and he will return to this word, although, by the way, it's unlikely, it's likely that this is something the secessionists were saying. It doesn't appear in his regular vocabulary, it seems. It's like they were saying something about fellowship, and he's like, no, 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 I'm going to tell you what fellowship actually is. That's very likely what's going on. But for him, for John, fellowship koinonia is far more than a friendly group of folks or a partnership of those who even have the same beliefs. Rather, it is the mutual life and love of those who are in the same spirit. Mutual life and love of those who are in one spirit. Because of this, one commentator points out and he says it very as candid as possible, The truth of the Scriptures is the only adequate foundation for fellowship. Let me read that again. The truth of the Scriptures, principally because they proclaim Christ, is the only adequate foundation. The basis of all lasting koinonia must be the theological realities of what God has done in and through His Son, Jesus Christ, which John is about to reaffirm in this letter. So, I'm not the vocabulary police. I'm not saying that it's legitimate to ever refer to any other form of fellowship. That's, that's not what I mean. You can have a fellowship in your neighborhood, whatever. But this word, koinonia, John's theology, is not simply people who go to the same church. It's not people who get together. It's not people who necessarily even like each other. It's deeper than that. Those things can be a part of it, but it's deeper than that, and we're going to return to that in the application. He clarifies that their fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, and the idea is... In order to have fellowship with John and those on behalf, you know, he's he's speaking on behalf of. You have to have fellowship with the Father and the Son as well. That's what he's saying. You want to have fellowship with us, koinonia, koinonia with us. Got to have fellowship with the Father and the Son as well. Not possible. We're going to see. He's going to continue on in this chapter. Not possible to have koinonia with people who do not have the Father and the Son. Not possible. We're going to see it. He says, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. There's a little textual variant there, which is why you probably have a number next to the hour. But there's a reason it says our and not yours, because all the best manuscripts have our and yours, probably a scribal correction. Seems more likely, oh yeah, he's saying they want your joy to be complete in Jesus. No, he's saying he wants his joy, our joy to be complete by sharing these things with the people who, who he, he loves. The people that he loves. In fact, um, as an illustration, just to kind of let this soak in. My children uh, often enjoy doing a wide variety of, of things and tricks and little things whatever everything around my house i can tell that they're enjoying it for what it is but guess what they always want daddy to watch watch me they say daddy watch daddy watch I, i thought i already did watch watch again and again watch can you watch me and, and the thing is, they're already doing something. They have joy in what they're doing. But their joy is made complete by bringing me into it. Okay? Their joy is made complete by me experiencing it too. And John is writing so that his joy can be complete. By the way, this shows up in Third, third John as well. I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth. So is He writing for their joy? Well, yeah, sure. But that's not what this verse says. He's saying there is something about His joy. His joy that He has in fellowship with the Father and the Son. And He is writing to them so they will know about it. Yes, but that's what completes His joy. To know that other people are experiencing the same thing that He is and creating a kind of unity that only the Father and the Son can create. And so John begins the letter holding up the person of Christ and drawing us to fellowship and understanding Christ as the one who was with the Father but has now been revealed, proclaimed since the beginning. And what has been proclaimed since the beginning hasn't changed. What's been proclaimed since the beginning hasn't changed. John's not teaching new things. He's saying, remember the beginning? Go with that. You heard this? Remember the beginning? Go with that. We're going to see that as we continue to move through the letter. Make a couple observations here as we close. Every preacher will tell you there are times where you're preparing a sermon and you wish that you could reconstruct for your audience a particular feeling that you had, a particular Sensation, an insight, or whatever that you had when you're preparing to preach, and you know you won't be able to do it. And I'll say this is one of those cases. I just have—I feel like I have no chance of communicating whatever it was that I experienced preparing this sermon. And this is as simple as application gets. And it's just the idea of Jesus, the real flesh, e—not fleshly in the simple sense. Just bones and skin and blood vessels and a historical figure of a man who came. There's is, there is a tendency for anything that is normal and regular and just to be underappreciated. And this is one of them. Jesus was a real guy who did real things, with real friends, he ate real food, he did all of it. And to prepare for this sermon, especially the background information, and hear about Polycarp talking to John about his conversations with Jesus... That John knew the tone of Jesus' voice as opposed to, say, Peter's. They had touched this man, Jesus Christ. Touched him before and after resurrection. I don't know why, but when I hear about Polycarp and Ignatius and the early fathers, Irenaeus, I register them in my head as well-known, you know, early church. Figures and historians. But for someone, for some reason, when I think about John, the eyewitness to Christ, I, I leave the world of history and go into the world of theology. And I don't know why. It's not like the two are mutually exclusive. For me, Eusebius, Polycarp. Okay, John the Evangelist. Now I'm in Johannine theology. For me, I, I, I theologize out the historical, just plain matter-of-fact Reality that John was a man who knew Christ Jesus himself and you're only because these letters are so late. I think this is the real because these letters are so late. That they are just one, two generations, not even necessary, not even a full generation away from people who knew who was who were disciples of John, who was an eyewitness to Jesus, who heard these things, who was able to be around Jesus And so I don't know exactly how to communicate this kind of just very obvious and in one level simplistic Christian truth that it almost helped me experience the historical Jesus in a way that simply believing the truth itself did not. So perhaps that is an encouragement to you this morning, particularly if you're prone to doubt or maybe you're someone who hears the voice of the scoffer on the Internet or in your workplace that 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 Jesus is extraordinarily well attested to in history extraordinarily well attested to in history and we have testimony from people who were the disciples of his apostles truly just it, it, it um I don't really know what else to say I don't know the words exactly to say what it is but I hope you can put that together and be encouraged by it somehow the second point is this. It's just this idea of joy and fellowship. Uh, this, this flows out of verse 3 and 4 here. And this is startling, startlingly similar to the second application from last, or last sermon, which I did not plan, by the way, but I also don't believe in coincidence. So here it goes. Because of the nature of koinonia, we'll call it biblical fellowship or true fellowship or something. We have to admit that fellowship is different than going to church, sharing the same beliefs as people, perhaps, being in the same location regularly, having warm feelings for and a good time with other folks. There is something deeper. There is deep unity around the foundations of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. There is... Life and soul that touch in light of union with Christ. And the first question I might ask you is this. And we've read about this fellowship right here. It is, is, is that kind of fellowship something that you have? You, are you in koinonia with people? Maybe you are, maybe you aren't. It's just an honest question. I, um, I would imagine there would be a range of answers and a range of reasons for why or why not. I'm just asking the question, are you in koinonia with other people? Just to think through that. To think through that. And there are some people in the quiet of their heart who just honestly need to confess. And, I, and by the way, I'll, I'll, I've felt this pull myself. So I bet if I'm, I always am skeptical that if I'm feeling a pull, especially on an issue like this, that other people have as well. A lot of people just need to confess that they feel more comfortable and would simply prefer social interaction with people who agree with them on their social and political views, but reject Christ, than those who they, with whom they stand to have actual koinonia with. There are people who would rather have, or they would say they have fellowship with people who do not have the son and the father because of agreement over here. And they really almost apologize for these people over here who do have, they could actually have koinonia, with. they actually stand a chance to have that. And if that's you, I would just encourage you to be honest about that. Be honest about it. I'd rather hang out with pagans who share my social and political views than Christians who don't. I've heard that from many people. If that's you, you just need to ask yourself have you heard that? Have you felt that pull on your heart at all? And then, how do you move forward? If that's you, how do you move forward there? How do you move forward from someone who says, oh, I know that they're a Christian, but I just honestly don't want anything to do with them because of their view on to, 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 to. it has nothing to do with the Father and the Son? Like, do you think that's a problem? That's a big problem. That's not a kind of fellowship that lasts. That's not. It's not koinonia. Who can I talk to? What could I change? Why why do I feel this way? What what accounts for this in my own soul? Just questions everyone, everyone can ask themselves. Doesn't matter where you fall on what end of whatever spectrum, everyone can ask themselves these honest questions and say. Is there there a need for a correction somewhere? And if so, how do I go about it? If I don't know how to go about it, who can I loop in to help me think about it? God the Son has manifested Himself in the flesh among us, and the invitation is to true fellowship. One that runs deeper than you can find anywhere else, and brings a joy that is able to sustain more than you can imagine. And so, in the words of, the, of a forgotten chorus, but a genuine one—I'm not making it up—happiness happens, but joy abides. Ooh, that's a good one to remember. Happiness happens, but joy abides. And so, I pray that as we continue to walk through this letter, that even when things are not happy in your life, because oftentimes they aren't, this life is hard. It's not a pleasantries factory. But my hope is, as we go through this letter, you will feel the abiding nature of joy that comes with knowing the Father through the Son in accordance with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we are people who desperately want to know the truth, to walk in the truth, to know life, Eternal life. Lord, we're people who want fellowship, true fellowship, koinonia. And Lord, we pray that you would just help us ask tough questions about our own life, our own soul, our own excuses that we tend to make for things, our own rationalizations, our own justifications. Maybe we have reasons and sometimes they're excuses, but Lord, we pray that you would deal with our own hearts. Give us discernment. Show us our blind spots. Help us have the desire to move forward instead of just be comfortable. Thank you for sending Christ. Thank you for the encouragement of the, of the God-man, Jesus Christ with the Father made manifest among us so that we could have eternal life and true fellowship. We pray that you would help us press further up and further in to these truths. And we ask in Jesus' name.